Today we find ourselves in the 12th chapter of Mark where Jesus was asked two questions. One question about paying taxes to Rome and the other question about marriage and the resurrection. We begin with the first question about taxes. It's found in Mark 12 verses 13 through 17. Let me read it for you. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray. Dear dear Father, I pray that we'll also be amazed today at your son's teaching and we'll be challenged by it. God, again, speak to our hearts, speak to our lives. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember what's going on at this point among the Jewish religious leaders. They were wanting to kill Jesus, but first... They had to discredit him before the crowds who were simply amazed with him. And so the questions that these leaders were asking were not really sincere questions. They were just trying to tramp him into saying something for which he could be arrested. Plus, they didn't mean anything that they said that flattered Jesus. They had no respect for him and no respect for his teachings. The first to ask a question were some Pharisees and some Herodians. These are two groups who didn't agree on anything, except that they wanted Jesus eliminated. The Pharisees were spiritual, the Herodians were secular. The Pharisees opposed Herod's reign, the Herodians supported him. The Pharisees were anti-tax and the Herodians were pro-tax. So so there was really no way that Jesus could please both of these groups when they asked the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? In reality, the Jewish people were heavily taxed by, by the Romans. There was a 1% income tax, a 10% tax on grain, a 20% tax on oil and wine, and a transport tax for taking goods to a different city, and then also on top of that, a poll tax of a day's wages. And so the topic of taxation was a divisive issue then, as it is today. If Jesus opposed these taxes, he would be in trouble with Rome. And if he approved these taxes, he would be in trouble with most of the Jewish people who hated paying these taxes to a pagan Roman government. 
I mean, it looks like Jesus is in a no-win situation. But he wisely said, amazing the crowd, in Mark 12, verse number 17, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. There are two lessons about this life in this short statement. The, the first lesson is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus knew that they were trying to trap him, and so he asked for someone to hand him a Roman coin. And when they gave him the coin, he asked whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. In reality, the one side of the coin had the image of the current emperor, Tiberius. And the words of the coin, the front of the coin said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And the other side declared Tiberius to be the high priest of the Roman Empire, which again was all idolatry. And yet in spite of that, Jesus said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Possibly even as he returned the coin. The truth is, as part of the Roman Empire, the Jews had certain obligations. Certain obligations to support its government and the services it provided for the people. Just as we have certain obligations to our government as American citizens. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul encouraged us to fulfill three responsibilities to our government as disciples of Jesus. Number one, we are to obey. We are to submit to to the government authorities and obey them. Paul said it this way in Romans 13, 1 and 2. He said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Our nation, just like any nation, can't continue to exist without the rule of law. And so we need to follow our nation's laws. Except when those laws are in direct opposition to what the Bible teaches. Number two, we are to pay. We are to pay our taxes in support of our government and the services it provides for us. Paul continued, Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. He says, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now don't forget that Paul was teaching this lesson to Christians in in the first century who were under the control of the pagan Roman government that at that point was persecuting the church. And if they were to pay their taxes to Rome, people, we need to pay our taxes to our government, whether we like it or not, and whether we agree at times with it or not. And number three, we are to pray. We are to pray for our governmental leaders. 
Just listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. And so we need to pray for our leaders from our president, Joe Biden, to our mayor, Bill Ingle. I believe that Jesus had all of that in mind when he taught this first lesson, that we as his disciples are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The second lesson is even more important. We are to give to God what is God. We are to give to God what belongs to God. Now, what is it then that belongs to God? Romans 12.1, I think, answers that question better than any other verse. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. According to this verse, everything that we have belongs to God. All that we have belongs to God, and we are to offer Him our all as a living sacrifice. Loving Him with all of our being, obeying Him with all of our heart, and making Him and His Word priorities with all of our lives. Just as the Roman coin bore the image of Tiberius Caesar... We each bear the image of God. As the coin belonged to Caesar, each of us belongs to God. And our first loyalty is to Him. Remember in the book of Acts when the apostles are told by some of these same Jewish leaders to no longer teach in Jesus' name, Peter and the other disciples told them, We must obey God rather than men. That needs to be the focus of our lives, especially as believers. To obey God, to honor God, to serve God, to give to God, to live for God. And that's what Jesus had in mind when he taught this second lesson, to give to God what is God's. However, Jesus did more teaching that day when he was asked a second question. A question about marriage and the resurrection. That part of the story is told, Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. It says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose life, whose wife, Will she be, since the seven were married to her? 
Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures are the power of God? When, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. I find it interesting that the Sadducees are the one who asked this question about marriage and the resurrection, but they didn't believe in any resurrection. I mean, according to them, your life was over and you were buried. That's it. That's it. That's why some have called them sad UCs. Because there was no life for them after death, at least in their minds. And yet they asked this complex question having to do with the resurrection. And I believe that they do it at least in part to mock the idea of resurrection. Back in the Old Testament, there was a liberate law which taught that if a man died without giving his wife a child... One of the man's brothers would have to marry the widow and hopefully give her a child in her first husband's name. This way the man's family name could continue and his property could remain in the family. Of course, the the Sadducees made a mockery of this. Having this this woman married six times to his brother's trying to have a child for the first husband. And so they wanted to Jesus to tell them whose wife was this woman going to be in the resurrection. Since she ended up marrying seven men, would she be the wife of the first husband or maybe the wife of all seven men? Listen again to how Jesus responded to his question. Mark 12:24 Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures are the power of God? Jesus doesn't mince with words in his response. You guys have no idea what you're talking about. That's basically what he's saying. Because you don't know what the Bible says about the resurrection and you don't know about the great power that God has to raise people from the dead. And so Jesus gave these Sadducees a quick class on the resurrection, teaching them and us two lessons about the next life after the resurrection. The first lesson is real simple. The scriptures teach that there is a resurrection, and that included the Old Testament scriptures. Here's what Jesus said in Mark 12, 26 and 27. He says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus went back to a story in the Old Testament book of Exodus. 
where God spoke to Moses from a burning bush and he introduced himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice he spoke in the present tense, I am right now their God. They may no longer live on the earth, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive. According to Jesus, God is not the God of dead people. He is the God of the living. Some living on earth and some living in his presence. And though there are only a few references to life after death in the Old Testament, it is clear that its writers believe that there was something more after death. Think about David. He lost the child that he had with Bathsheba. And after his son died, he made this statement. He said, one day I will go to him, but he cannot return to me. David believed that he would see his son again in an afterlife. Just as I believe that I will see my son Micah, who died, again in the afterlife. David also believed that he would spend eternity with God. He wrote at the end of the 23rd Psalm, verse number 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David was sure that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And as disciples of Jesus, we can be sure that we too will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We can be sure that when we die, we will rise again to a new life with Him. The resurrection of the dead, it may be a veiled truth in the Old Testament, but it is an unveiled truth in the New Testament. Let let me share with you just two verses, both from the Apostle Paul. The first one, Romans 8, verse number 11. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Jesus said that the the Sadducees didn't know the great power that God had. And we may not, like them, know the great power that we have living within us as Christians. I mean, think about it. God's Holy Spirit The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. And as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit's power will raise us from the dead. Paul repeated that same truth in a second scripture, 1 Corinthians 6.14, and God will raise us from the dead by His power, just as He raised our Lord from the dead. Paul wanted those who read his letters to know that after they died, there would be a resurrection. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know that, that after they died, that there would be a resurrection. And I want you to know this morning that after you die, there will be a resurrection. And Jesus' first lesson, that's his first lesson. The scriptures teach that there is a resurrection. And then the second truth is our resurrected life is far different from our present life. 
The resurrected life is simply not the same life as our present life is. Here was how Jesus responded to the Sadducees' question about the woman and her potential seven husbands of the resurrection. He says in Mark 12, 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. I have to tell you when I read that verse, it kind of troubles me. Just as I can't imagine living without Christy on earth, I certainly can't imagine living without her as my wife in heaven. I mean, in my dream, she would have her heavenly beach home, and I would have my heavenly mountain home. And we would go back and forth between those two homes, enjoying each other for eternity. But that's not the way it will be. There won't be any marriage in heaven. And yet at the same time, the Bible assures us that we will know each other in heaven, but it is our bodies that will be different and better, and our lives will be different and better. I like the way one commentary put it. It says, when we get to heaven, we will be like the angels, only in the sense that we will be spiritual beings that will have no need for the physical necessities of this earthly life. In heaven, like the angels, we will be deathless, sinless, sexless, glorified, and eternal. But unlike the angels, we will be like Jesus. Paul describes the difference between our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they are raised in glory. They, they are buried in weakness, but they are raised in, in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they are raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Think for a moment about all your physical ailments. Broken hips, broken ankles, knee replacements, back problems, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, cancer, strokes, high blood pressure, viruses, and infections. There will be none of that with our resurrected bodies. And there will be no pandemics in heaven. (laughs) Praise God. Our bodies will be perfect, and our lives will be perfect, which is just hard for us to imagine. The Apostle Paul wrote towards the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be more death, our mourning, our crying, our pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We can't hardly imagine a life like that. No more funerals to attend. No more loss to experience. No more to cry about. No more pain. (laughs) There's certainly a lot that the Bible doesn't tell us about our resurrected life in heaven. But it does tell us enough that none of us will be disappointed with what God has prepared for us there. 
Jesus' second lesson is so true. Our resurrected life will be far different from our present life. Our resurrected life will be far greater, far better than our present life. You know, that sounds like the kind of life that we should all want. But that resurrected life can only be found by putting your faith in Jesus, putting your life and your eternity in his hands. That that brings us to our practical applications. What do we want to do as a result of Jesus' challenge here? Number one, recognize as a disciple of Jesus, your first priority is to give yourself fully to God, honoring Him and serving Him. People, that's our first priority. We are Christians. We are Christ ones. And our first concern, our first priority, is making sure that He is honored and He is served in our life. Now, number two, realize your Christian responsibility to obey, support, and pray for our country's leaders, whether you agree with them or not. We are to be good citizens as good Christians. And then last of all, rest in Jesus' promise of a coming resurrection with a new spiritual body and a new eternal life. That's what we hope for all of you. That one day we can all share together this wonderful resurrected life with Jesus and with the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you so very much for this opportunity to share. And now I pray a blessing upon each of us. God, help us to serve and honor you. God, I pray for those who maybe have never accepted you as Lord and Savior of their lives. And I pray today that they will move, be moved towards that decision. That they might know, that they might know that they will enjoy this resurrected life with new bodies and a new life. Work in each of us now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We thank you so very much for listening today. It's the Christmas season, and we'd just like to invite you to come and share with us on Sunday mornings. We're going to be here on Sunday mornings on the radio, but it'd be great if you'd just come and share. Sunday morning at 10.30, we assemble each week. We want to pray God's blessing upon you during this Christmas season. We thank you again for listening. We look forward to sharing with you next Sunday. Have a great week. God bless.